Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, in just a second, my mic will come on, and hopefully you all be able to hear me easier. But for now, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. That's good. So I, um, oh, I want to tell a story, but I'll have to save it until later. Um, could you all go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And while you're turning there, I want to mention something, and I know it's going to sound like a weird way to introduce, but um, have you all heard the Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day? Uh, it was a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and in it he says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, they're proclaiming peace, and then it says, in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I want you to think about how devastating it is at times to think about the message of the message of peace, the message of the gospel in a time when we see so much destruction and evil. Uh, we're watching it, and it's discouraging. And the line of the song that that encourages the the narrator is that God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. So brothers and sisters, at a time when people are openly, is it going to work? It's all right. I can, I can just talk loud. Is it good? All right. All right. Slight reverb. Oh, that sounds better, right? All right. So at a time when we have civil magistrates that are taxing people and inflating the dollar into worthlessness, at a time when they are creating civil law that codifies in many states the murder of children, taking away parental rights to mutilate children. Um, we could go on to all of these things. There's warmongering, there's overtaxation, there's all kinds of evil stuff. And I tell you what, it, it gets discouraging. And there are days, and I will just confess to you, like yesterday, where I'm just like, Lord, what, what's going on? To listen to historians, uh, I listen to a podcast called Theology Pugcast, and it's got a couple of theologians and historians, and they're saying, what we are seeing right now in the world, the change to self-destructive things is happening so fast, it has to be demonic. And so there are days like that where I'm like, Lord, is it going to get any better? I feel a lot like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And so, brothers and sisters, today of all days is a good day to remember that God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. And so, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, um, in verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, interesting, there are a lot of scholars that note that in the original language, this seems to have kind of a meter to it. In fact, verses 3 through 6 uh, reads like a hymn or a catechism or a poem. And the belief, because Paul is saying, I delivered what I received, it seems that what Paul got was a catechism or a hymn that would have been used to teach doctrine in the first century. And he says, I heard this, I delivered to you, now I'm writing it here in my book or my letter to you. He says, of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is of first importance. Now, I will remind you that Corinth had pagan practices that look a lot like what we're seeing right now. 
There was incredible licentiousness. Uh, there was abuse of power. There was plenty of things that were wicked. There was sinful. And Paul, when he showed up in Corinth, did not start off by saying, you know what we're going to do first, you guys? We're going to get the right guy elected so that we can fix this whole Aphrodite worship thing. It's not we're going to get the right guy elected or we're going we're gonna to take over in this way to make this thing happen. No, he begins with, I, de- I resolve to know nothing among you except this gospel message of the atoning death and resurrection of Christ. Now, we know other things were important to Paul. He writes about them in, in these letters. But the first step, the most critical thing, was the proclamation of the gospel. Against every wickedness, against every heinous pagan thing, the first step was the proclamation of the gospel. So a little side note, I just have to acknowledge this. This is a sidebar. But I don't know if you all are hearing this mess on TikTok that uh, that Easter is pagan. Have you all heard this? Where they try to say like, oh, you know, you Christians are just stealing something from paganism. Part of me wants to be like, yeah, you know what? Even if we did, whatever, we win. Like, we're, we're, Jesus is king over everything. We're coming and taking it from you. I'm not even kidding. Um, I'm like, we'll come and take it from you. Um, but here's the reality. Easter is not pagan. Um, a couple of, I'll just note this. Uh, people have been going around saying that um, essentially that there was worship of the Saxon goddess uh, Eostra or Ostara, the Germanic goddess, and that since those names sound like Easter, they're like, ah, see, it's pagan. Uh, we only have one mention of these gods slash goddesses, and it's in the Venerable Bede in the 600s. Um, it's in passing, and there's really nothing to connect any of our worship practices to that. Like, it's just not there. Most of the stuff that tries to connect these are folk tales from the 1800s, nothing that actually goes back to antiquity. So I'm like, nope, not there. Um, there's also the idea that like, ooh, see, the pagan festivals happen in the spring, and you celebrate resurrection in the spring, so it's just made up. Which is, it, it doesn't follow. It's non sequitur anyway. However, there's a whole bunch of things that celebrate in the spring. We celebrate in the fall too. We celebrate in the winter. The fact that there's proximity means nothing. And by the way, we celebrate, we don't celebrate Easter on like the spring equinox day. Like that's not connected. Um, here's the thing we do know that in the first century, pretty much immediately, faithful Christians started worshiping Jesus on Sunday. We changed our regular day of worship to worship on the Lord's day because that's when he resurrected. So if anything, you want to say, like, we started celebrating Easter, we might not have called it that, but like our day of worship changed for the sake of the gospel because of the resurrection. So we predate it. The other thing is what we celebrate in Easter, like when we take a day in the spring and celebrate extra special because we kind of celebrate Easter every Sunday, you guys. I mean, we proclaim the gospel every Sunday. Uh, This practice seems to have come in as early as the second century to have like a special, extra special Easter day. We've been doing this for a long, long time. So the big question, by the way, I have the little RC Sproul, what's wrong with you people? Because it's so ridiculous. I get it. Can I tell you all, just a side note, as a theologian and as an apologist, I'm really weary of people on TikTok that know zero, that want to talk like they know something about God. Don't let them get away with that. They say foolish things about the text of scripture. That's God's word. They don't have the authority to do that, and I'm, I'm sick of it. And I respond sometimes, not on TikTok because it's a spy app, but that's a whole other thing. All right, so a couple of things that you should know, and this is just side note history, but I feel like I need to cover this because there's people out there attacking this, and I want our, I want our church to be equipped, right? First of all, for most of the world, 
We don't call it Easter. Most of the world calls it Pascha or some version of it because it comes from Passover. Jesus' resurrection and death happened around the time of the Passover, which, by the way, is itself significant. right? And so the idea of Easter having pagan roots because it's called Easter just doesn't show up at all in most of the world. It's not even an issue. It's only a question in the Germanic languages, and we still have no evidence of it being tied to anything. Here's what we do have. We have um, the old German word for white week is Eostarum, um, which sounds like Easter. So some people are like, maybe that's why we call it Easter. It's like Holy Week, Passion Week, White Week, maybe. I mean, even that's a stretch. So the other, we know that the word, the Scandinavian uh, word for April is Eostra, which is named after a goddess. Like, we recognize that. And so we tend to celebrate Easter in April. So maybe that's just it. And so some people are like, aha, knew it was pagan. Um, and I would go immediately like, do you celebrate the 4th of July? And they were like, well, yeah, I do. Okay, so July uh, is named after Julius Caesar. There is nothing related in, in our celebration of our day of independence, nothing connected to Caesar worship. It's the name of the month. And so I'm going to guess probably it got called Easter because that's the month we were celebrating. All right? Um, not a big word. Not a big deal. Um, we could talk about some other things there. The issue here is, brothers and sisters, there is nothing pagan about celebrating Easter. And mm, it frustrates me. Even, you guys, even coloring eggs seems to come out of Lenten practices related to boiling eggs for preservation during Lent. I mean, even that stuff that they try to throw on paganism, you guys. Anyway, that was just a little side note. Um, but let's, let's draw it back to 1 Corinthians 15. I needed to give that side note in there. Paul writes this in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Notice he's bringing up a hypothetical, and Paul uses long run-on sentences. It's something we do in theology. I know not everybody likes it. My wife is grinning because I hate how you theologians write. Um, this is how Paul writes. There's reasons for it. Trust me. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Can you imagine? I like how Paul is setting this up. You can't get away with saying the resurrection didn't happen and still be a faithful Christian. I know there are those among the progressivist movement or among theological liberalism that would say, well, I'm a cultural Christian and I like this, but I don't believe any of the miracle stuff. I don't believe Jesus died from, for, for our sins. I don't believe he rose from the dead, but I'm still a Christian. No, you're not. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, this is all worthless. We need to get that very clear. Either he rose from the dead, and this is the best news ever, or he didn't, and this is worse than a waste of time. For crying out loud, especially in Corinth, people were giving up lots of fleshly desires. They would have been facing some form of persecution that was going to get worse later on in the first century. Once Nero gets really upset, it gets really bad. Right? The idea that somehow you could have a, a kind of a, a spiritualism that wasn't grounded in reality or in the reality of the resurrection, Paul is saying, no, it's bad. Because that means if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then nobody else will. 
And that means your grandma who died is gone forever. There's no hope. That means that your brother who was martyred for the faith, gone forever. No hope. That means you're still in your sin and you cannot overcome this. Either Jesus rose from the dead and everything is good or he didn't and it's hopeless. And so I'm going to take another little sidebar. I know I'm, I'm doing this a lot. But I'm going to just address this issue. Because we are in a time in modern and postmodern eras in which people want to deny that anything related to a miracle happened in the first century. Even prominent theologians such as Karl Barth denied the resurrection, as I'm told, until the end. There's a chance that he trusted Christ at the very end. I hope he did. So I want to just draw attention to this. We're going to do some apologetics very briefly. This is a sidebar. Um, but if you want to re- write this down, I'll put this up on the, on the slides. I'll put the slides on the website later. But remember this little math equation. Eyewitness accounts plus reliable documentation plus martyrdom equals the resurrection occurred. Now, I'm just going to go through this. Uh, a lot of the information I'm sharing with you is some evidence that I got from Dr. Gary Habermas, who's a friend and hero of mine. Uh, but pay attention. First of all, what we have in the New Testament is indeed eyewitness accounts. Acts 1.8, Jesus talks about this, how he's sending them out as witnesses. Uh, eyewitnessship was a requirement for being an apostle. We see this in Acts 1, in Acts, 20, uh, in Acts 1, in Acts 10, and 1 Corinthians 9. The idea was... We need eyewitnesses of Jesus because we're going to go in all the world. We're going to start these churches. You need to be able to know and say, I saw him raised from the dead with my own eyes. We also see that all the New Testament books had to have what we call apostolicity. The idea that it was that it was either written by an apostle himself or a direct associate that was essentially serving as a scribe or a historian documenting what the eyewitnesses were saying. This is what we have in Luke. Luke is not the apostle Luke. Luke is the guy who's hanging out with the apostles, documenting everything that's happening. Cool? All right? This makes sense, hopefully. A little side note. Some of you guys are like, I'm not interested in this. That's okay. Um, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians. But I, I'm, for those of you who need some evidence... Um, I'm going to give you the best evidence in a second, but this is, this is intro. The other thing is we have multiple eyewitnesses beyond that. Other disciples. There were 500 at one time, as we see later in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so here we have eyewitnesses, and they're being documented in the New Testament. So we have really three criteria. I've added a fourth as bonus, but three criteria for good historical documentation. Uh, one, if it's going to be reliable, we need to have a lot of copies. Give me a couple of clicks there, brother. There we go. Oh, back one, back one. You're good. So number of copies. If you have 26 copies of an old, ancient document, it is considered amazing. We will do history on something that will have one or two or three pieces. If you've got 26, it's considered like, yeah, this happened. Number two historical document behind the New Testament is Homer's The Iliad. We have about 600 copies. Um, That's a lot. And yet with the New Testament, if we count only the early stuff, the earliest copies of the New Testament, only in Greek, we have 1,500 copies. It beats everything right there. But here's the thing. There was a lot of Latin speakers at the time because Rome had taken over. It wasn't just Alexander the Great that had conquered the world. Rome came by and did the same thing. And so there's a lot of people speaking Latin. And so the gospel got translated, the New Testament got translated into Latin. If we count the early Latin and Greek together, that's 5,000 manuscripts. That's a lot, okay? Here's the interesting thing. Our critics count something early if it goes up to 800 AD, which to me is a little bit long. We're talking about stuff that's in the 200, you know, 100 time, but they want to count everything in 800 because they like to count all of the variant readings we're going to talk about in a second. 
If we count all of those, we have roughly 26 million copies. 26 million copies of the New Testament, if you count anything from, you know, whatever, 33 AD up to 800 AD. That's a lot. Nothing beats it. There is no document like the New Testament. Nothing comes even close. Even in the most conservative estimate, nothing comes close. So then the next issue is you want something that has very few variant readings, right? The less contradictions or differences between your documents, the better, right? So generally, we accept that there's going to be variant readings, there's going to be errors in copies, and that's we accept that, right? Here's what's interesting. Um, if we look at what we have just in Scripture alone, I need to bring up this. There's this guy, Bart Erdman, uh, who claims to have been an evangelical theologian and who has become an atheist slash agnostic, and he wants to deny all of the New Testament. And so he has this statement he will make. He'll say that there are more errors in the New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament manuscript. So can we just pause for a second and say, something about that statement doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Well, here's what he's done. He has counted all of those 26 million copies up through 800 AD, and then, which is a lot, and so if you numbered all those words in all of those documents, we're, we're talking about a whole lot of words, you guys. And then he says, all right, there's whatever, I forget how many thousand error, what we would call, not errors, but variants. And he says, see, can't believe anything. I want you to just imagine, if we take 26 million manuscripts of the New Testament, we stack them up, they would be about a mile and a half into the sky. And if we isolated all of the variant readings into one section, it would be about two inches of variant readings. So when you put it into perspective like that, we're talking about a very small number of variant readings. And guess what? None of them affect doctrine. None of them say like, oh, Jesus was the son of Zeus, uh, or Jesus had wings, uh, or Jesus didn't say he was God, nothing like that. Uh, they are all issues related to spelling, but Bart Ehrman counts that as an error. I'm like, I don't really have an issue with spelling. Um, or word order. In Greek, by the way, the ending or the form of the word tells you what it does in the sentence. You can actually move them around within certain reason. Um, so we have that. So again, it doesn't even affect the meaning. And then we have some things related to numbers being rounded up or rounded down, or in some cases translated slightly differently. Nothing that affects doctrine and an absolute minuscule number of them. So we have with, with the New Testament as a historical document, better than anything. All right, cool. Continuing on. We also have date of writing. We could go on this a long time, but you compare Jesus and Tiberius Caesar. Uh, the writers for Tiberius Caesar show up way later. Um, the Jesuses are all within his lifetime. Um, we also see something interesting. Paul in Galatians meets in Jerusalem and talks to the other apostles. He's giving an eyewitness account. He's documenting the eyewitness accounts between five and 15 years of the resurrection. And what's really interesting there, what's really wonderful, is that even the critics will acknowledge that, yep, Paul wrote that, Yep, it's accurate. Yes, it's reliable. Pretty cool. This is, we're not even getting the good stuff yet. But does this kind of give us something that, like, man, the New Testament's reliable? Like, this whole thing of the, the whole telephone game of the New Testament, like, ah, oh, you can't believe anything of it. It's just been... No, 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 no. I can right now take you to a copy of a manuscript. It's a fragment from A.D. 100 of the Gospel of John that we found in Egypt. And I could translate that right now. That's good news, brothers and sisters. All right? Continuing on. So we also have the wonderful uh, issue of number of copies. You know, if you are going to compare Jesus and Tiberius Caesar, we only have nine total sources early. Jesus, we have over 40 from within 100 years or so. Pretty cool. Here's what's interesting, though. Can we just acknowledge um, that they could have all just been lying? 
right? Could we think about like maybe these guys got together and said, we'll just lie, we'll make up this religion. Now, I would really be questioning the motives when immediately it would mean you were ostracized from your family, you would be on the run, you would be martyred, and that there was really no hope of any blessing in this life, right? Um, how interesting that these guys are willing to be martyred. Dr. Habermas has this quote. He says, liars don't make martyrs. If I wanted to invent a religion and say, everybody's got to listen to heavy metal and give me a million dollars, and somebody puts a gun to my head and says, Dan, is that really true? I'm probably going to be like, no, man, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we have over 500 at a time. We have all of the 12 apostles that are willing to face death. And notably, all of them went from cowering in fear until they saw the resurrected Jesus. And every one of them was willing to die for the proclamation of this gospel that Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He means it because he saw the resurrected Jesus too. So when we say eyewitness accounts, reliable documentation, martyrdom, it's pretty great evidence that the resurrection occurred. Could I add some one thing, though? That's actually not the best evidence we have. It's really good. I mean, it's compelling. I don't know about you. You guys can challenge me later on, but it's really compelling. Um, here's what's really wild. You cannot beat the very word of God. The authority of Scripture trumps any bit of evidence that we have. It just does. And I can tell you, I've sat down, I've debated, I've given evidence, and had somebody even concede the points. In fact, the really great apologists are like, regularly, we'll con- we'll, I mean, they have to concede a lot of these points, right? Otherwise, you have to throw out all of first century history, right? All, most of antiquarian history, you have to say like, ah, throwing it out because I don't want to believe that the New Testament is reliable. But they still won't just trust Jesus. Romans 10 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you cannot beat the word of God. And as we are reading here in 1 Corinthians, in the very word of God, it proclaims that this Jesus really did raise from the dead. Cool. All right, so then I'm going to one little bit more of apologetics, and then we'll move on. So if you're like, this is too nerdy for me, I'm not interested, give me two (laughs) minutes. All right, here's the other interesting thing. So there was a system here designed to protect the proclamation of the gospel. Because some people are coming along saying like, well, what if it happened this way? What if it was all a joke? What if somebody else had another opinion, right? Because that's what people do now in postmodern. They're like, ah, that's, that's their opinion. You know, we had a system for protecting this. First of all, we already mentioned that Jesus commissioned the apostles as eyewitnesses and says, you guys are going to be the guys who proclaim the gospel because you're eyewitnesses and I'm sending you. You have authority as a result of this. So there was a rule from the very beginning that you weren't supposed to accept anything that didn't come from an apostle, right? You had to be able to say like, yeah, this is this, this document, this came from the apostle, right? Interesting things there. So eyewitness was really clear. Apostolicity was really important. Paul even warns against false, false gospels in Galatians 1. He says, anybody else comes along, if even I start teaching something else, he's like, let him be accursed. If an angel from heaven comes and tells you something, to hell with him, this is what Paul is saying, right? No other gospels. So eyewitness, no other Gospels. And we see interesting things. Paul realizes that people are going to be cheating and and lying about him. And so he makes sure to sign things in his own hand. He makes sure when he's sending a letter to another city, he sends it with someone they know that they know knows him. So he can be like, hey, this is Timothy. This is Phoebe. This is whoever. You know them. You, You know that they're bringing a letter that's really from me. Then we have this wonderful bit of corroboration. Paul is saying like, hey, I've sent you this letter. I want you to copy it. I want you to send it uh, over to Laodicea. The idea then that these documents from the, that were eyewitness 
proclamations of the resurrection of Jesus were being copied and shared among the, among the other churches. We have even Peter is affirming Paul's writings of scripture, Paul and so forth. These guys were alive and they were planting these churches. And so a letter from Paul would show up and they'd be like, yep, that's Paul. I know that writing. This is Paul. Good work, guys. Um, it's just kind of amazing. Citations were happening in the first and second century because the apostolic fathers were recognizing that this is God's word from the apostles. It's amazing. Um, and then we have this wonderful issue of succession because some people are like, oh, wait a minute. What if we threw away some really good ones? Well, no, there was this criteria built in. They wanted to know it was from an apostle. And you realize there were apostles planting churches and then discipling people. Just like, you know, I'm, I'm training up elders here. I'm not an apostle. Right? But I'm training up elders, and right, if somebody said, hey, that book that supposedly Dan wrote, um, are you sure that was Dan? And Adam could be like, oh, yeah, I mean, like, this is, I know him, he gave me this, and here, I can, I can point to you. And so if later on, Adam is discipling someone, and he's like, oh yeah, Carl. Well, maybe not a Carl. Robert. Because Carl's always the guy you pick on, right? Robert, Robert can trace the lineage, and this is what we see. We see in um, Cyprian of Carthage, and Tertullian, both, they talk about, if somebody wants to bring up something that is supposedly from one of the apostles, let's see the receipts. Because we can trace back our lineage. We had these things on file. We know they were handed to this bishop, who was trained by this bishop, who was a disciple of John himself. Cool, interesting stuff. You guys probably aren't that interested, other than to say that, like, you guys, what we have that we call New Testament scripture, it really is. Right? In fact, Carthage, when they write to Rome, and they're like, we've been using this criteria, these are the 27 New Testament books we have. Guess what Rome said? They're like, funny, we got the exact same set, you guys. That's pretty awesome, because they use the same criteria. <sighs> All right. So as we move on, back to 1 Corinthians 15. The interesting thing here is that beyond all this, the tomb is empty, even now. No one has been able to produce Jesus' body and all this time. So when Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain, he is saying it rhetorically because he knows Christ rose from the dead. So verse 20, he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits meaning some of us, or those who have faith in him, we're going to be raised as he was. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection over his, under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected or accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Paul's making a little side note clarification. He's like, okay, Jesus has all authority. Just to be clear, God the Father isn't somehow subordinate to the Son. He's making this clear. It's a side note, might not be important to you, but Paul knows later on that somebody's going to be like, aha, contradiction. And he's like, no, guys, and this is why we have to use long sentences in theology, because people show up and they try to twist our words and we try to clarify. Anyway, this is when all things are subjected to him, 
Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Can you guys just think for a moment what Paul is doing? He's going from at the beginning saying, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen from the dead, right? And then he says, I wanted you to know that because it's the most important thing. And he's like, by the way, some of you are going around saying that there is no resurrection. If that's the case, then Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. You're in your sins. It's hopeless. And then he goes on to give us all of these things. He's like, I've seen him. 500 people at a time saw him. There's all this wonderful evidence. He's like, it's so important that he rose from the dead. And he's like, guess what? We're going to raise from the dead too. And then he ends this section by taunting death. Please make no mistake. This is not just some like, oh, yay, you know, hopefully it's all right. No, no, no. He's taunting death. He says, death, you have nothing. Where is your victory, death? You got nothing because you just lost. Where is your sting? It doesn't hurt anymore, death, because you just lost. Jesus has won. He has triumphed over death, and it's not just some nice platitude that pastors say once a year or every Sunday. It's not just something we give you warm fuzzies with at a funeral. Jesus' actual flesh and bone came alive again. The lungs that were once breathing air before and lay dead in the tomb began to breathe living air again. He stood up and he walked, he ate food, and he was able to demonstrate this body right here that has been made new proves everything. It proves that he was God. It proves everything that he proclaimed because God would not raise a liar from the dead confirming everything that he said. It means Jesus is God. It means he really did die for our sins. It means he really did raise from the dead. And it means I can have that hope. There is no reason why the apostles, cowering in the upper room, fearing for their lives, would suddenly be okay because they had some warm fuzzies thinking about how nice Jesus was. And they decided, we'll talk about him raising into our heart in this kind of spiritual. No! Those those bones came alive. And that blood that bought us peace with God started going through his veins again because Jesus became alive again. We call it resurrection. And that's why Paul then is able to just straight taunt death in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Oh, it's good stuff. So Paul writes this in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. This should remind us of Romans 5, by the way. This is the sting of death is sin. Sin is what brought death into the world. Jesus beat that. Death is the effect of sin. Jesus beat that. The law is how we know how sinful we are and how perfect God is, and we realize that we could never earn it back, and Jesus fulfilled the law for us. This is, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives us a therefore. Now, I know it's, it's a joke, it's cliche to say, what is the therefore, therefore? 
But I think there's a big reason here. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, I, I have to say, guys, I get discouraged at the labor. We've been church planting for like nine years. You know how many times people get mad? We've disciplined somebody and then they were just gone. Or somebody just disagreed with something they didn't like and they were gone. Or, or somebody was faithful and we loved them and they moved away. And then I'm like, okay, all right, we're doing this again. All right, Lord. And then we watch what's happening in the world. It's like, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm doing the work. And it seems to be getting worse. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Every morning you get up and you go to work to the glory of God, you may be ridiculed by your neighbors, you might be mocked by your coworkers, or you might not be getting anything. Every time you look at the news and you're like, dear God, how can you allow this to happen? And you're thinking, all I'm doing here is I'm discipling my kids, I'm preaching the gospel to them, I'm doing catechism, I feel like I'm messing up in front of them, and I'm seeking repentance, and I'm doing my best. That labor is not in vain. Every time you go to the voting booth and you vote, sometimes I wonder whether it means anything or not, but it is not in vain. Every time you stand, every time you're in those little Facebook debates where you proclaim the gospel and everybody mocks you and says you're a fool and you're a bigot because you believe that certain things are sin, your labor is not in vain. And it's not merely because we have to win this over on ourselves, it's because Christ already won. He has already conquered sin and death. He really did raise from the dead. I am no longer in my sin and neither are you. And there is hope, brothers and sisters, both in this life and in the next, because they may just start killing us soon. I hope not. I don't want to be like whatever, but it could happen. We got brothers and sisters that are being killed right now and their labor is not in vain. There are portions of the world where the gospel went, there were faithful Christians there, and the enemy just came through and slayed them all. And the labor is not in vain. There are people who even now are suffering in a hole somewhere who can't seem to, they can't even get out of there to preach the gospel to anybody. And their labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, every bit of this is to God's glory and there is hope. This is why we say Christ's resurrection is the cornerstone of the faith. Because it means everything is different. Everything has changed. And there is absolute hope. So brothers and sisters, proclaim the good news that Jesus conquered death. They can't touch us. Like, there's a song, I, I, some of you know I like heavy metal. There's a song by a, a, a heavy metal band called Demon Hunter. You can imagine the name. Um, and the song is, uh, makes this comment of like, where's the victory when death is on my side? For crying out loud. Where's the enemy when death is on my side? I, I, I have nothing to fear. Um, and this was the mantra. Mantra is not the right word. This was the model of the apostles. Brothers and sisters, we have great hope. He really did raise from the dead. Uh, he really did conquer sin. Your debt is paid. And you have a hope of eternal life. And that Jesus, who saved you by his Holy Spirit, abides within you, giving you joy daily. So regardless of what Joe Biden does, regardless of what Rachel Levine does, 
regardless of whatever globalist mess does, regardless of what China does or Russia does, regardless of what happens with your tax dollars, regardless of what happens to the American dollar, regardless of the protesters in Oberlin, regardless of the person that has the most radical anti-God opinion that you could ever imagine that's sitting in the table next to you discussing things as if you are the most foolish person in the world, regardless, we already won. So, Lord Jesus, as we stand here before you, uh, tempted to despair, God, every time we proclaim the gospel, uh, discouragement seems like a joke. But I think of how I have felt in the recent weeks, uh, well, recent days, and then coming before you and hearing your words sung and proclaimed reminds me that uh, it's, it's, it, it's foolish to even think that there is anything but massive hope. So may your kingdom come and will be done. May we boldly proclaim the gospel. Um, and may your enemies be brought to nothing, either by repentance or by your judgment. But most of all, may we faithfully make disciples and raise up our children uh, and see your kingdom come. In Christ's name, amen.